Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles, California. On each episode, we talk with a biographer about his or her work. The historian Stanley Godbold had written three books before he decided on the subject that's consumed him for the last three decades. Now Professor Emeritus at Mississippi State University, Godbold has just released the second volume of his biography of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, which chronicles their rise to power and work in human rights from 1975 to 2020. Published by Oxford University Press in September 2022, Oxford also published Volume 1 back in 2010. I spoke with Professor Godbold from his home in Starkville, Mississippi, via Zoom. I didn't know I was embarking upon a 32-year-long project. But what happened is I had just finished a book, and I, I believe I was up at Princeton University on, a, on an NEH grant studying religion and politics in Western society or some such. And I was thinking, you know, what I was looking around for the next topic. And I picked up a newspaper and I saw an article where Jimmy Carter had attended a book fair in Nashville, Tennessee. And I wondered why he had done that. So when I read the article, I discovered how much he had written, how much he had published. So I started looking at what he had written thinking I would just write an essay about Jimmy Carter as a writer. Hmm. That's all I intended to do. (laughs) My first book was a biography of a writer. And of course, I was interested in the relationship between literature and history. And also, I was interested in the relationship of the South to the rest of the nation. Mm -hmm. And then I also had a background in religion. And so... You know, literature, religion, the South, relationship to the rest of the nation. You know, all of those topics suddenly came together in Jimmy mm-hmm. Carter. Yeah. And so I went over to Atlanta to the Carter Library. This was about 1990. I actually began in, in earnest in August of 1990. And uh, just to, you know, look and see what they had and th- still thinking about the essay. The Carter Library was pretty new then, and I discovered just a treasure trove of original documents, all sorts of information that nobody was touching. And I thought, well, it'll be fun to start reading this stuff. And Mm -hmm. I did. And one thing led to another, and it became, the story became increasingly interesting. One thing I loved about doing, and I love about thinking about now, it is quite a story. You know, it is quite an incredible story, yes. uh, as you know. And I wanted to tell it as a story, but I want it to be thoroughly researched and documented as well. I wasn't very deep into the research before it occurred to me that Jimmy's story was not separate from Rosalind's story. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no way really to tell his story adequately without including hers as well. And so that's when I decided to attempt a dual biography. Mm -hmm. And 
And of course, that complicated my work tremendously. Yes. Because I, I had to do research on her when she was a part of his story and also research on her when she was doing her own things, which was a considerable part of her, of her story, as you know. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got started. And I just kept plugging along. And uh, the, the first volume dealt with uh, Carter's uh, life, their lives through his uh, governorship. Mm-hmm. And I really kind of sent that out originally as a, it was a, it was a good block of material within itself, but I sent it out as kind of a trial balloon and it flew to my amazement actually. And actually with Oxford University Press, I was extremely lucky to get Oxford University Press to take it. But if I could also step back for a second too. So when you entered that archive for the first time, the presidential archive, which was, as you said, new at that time. So you were one of the first people wading through all of this material and those presidential libraries for anybody listening who hasn't been into one are overwhelming. How did you decide what to start reading in that archive? Because even just that alone, if you went in with an idea and not a very focused mission, which is what you started with, how did you wend your way through masses of material? Okay, that's a wonderful question. And I, I have a long answer and a short answer. It is basically funny now. In fact, I'm going to use it if, in some of my speeches if I give any now about the book. I, I had been in university libraries and, you know, knew a number of archivists and uh, Smithsonian archives, Library of Congress as well as universities, but I'd never been a presidential library. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it is overwhelming. So I showed up, I called them, I made an appointment, I showed up. And they have a system, which I guess most of them do, where when a new researcher shows up, one of the archivists interviews him and to find out what he's looking for to give him guidance. Yes. And uh, I needed that because it was overwhelming. So I showed up and the assistant director of the library, whose name was uh, Martin Elsey, uh, part of the dedication of my current book is in memory of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a great guy. And so he was the person who started interviewing me and telling me how to use the, the library. And of course, he gave me all kinds of information I never had, I never had dreamed of about different kinds of files and things like that. And this must have gone on for about an hour, which was unusual. And uh, I guess he was wondering if I was ever going to understand how to use a presidential library. And at the end of it, the interview, he just looked at at me and he said, I really don't think I know what you're going to do when you walk through that door into the research room. And I kind of smiled to myself and I thought, this man is remarkably perceptive because I don't know either. (laughs) (laughs) and then I finally told him I said well I want to look at the Jody Powell file because I knew Carter had been close to Jody Powell and I I knew they had had the Powell file there and I thought that would be a good starting place and that is where I started but I tell you what I was really thinking being the thorough researcher that I am is I wanted, I wanted to tell him, well, I want to see all 28 million pages. <laughs> but I was afraid he would faint right there. 
<laughs> while we're at the interview room, and I hated to cause the man to faint, you know, in his own library. So I didn't tell him that. <laughs> Even that first file, those first thousand files, I, it's just, yeah. It was intimidating. It was yes. very intimidating. But, you know, it's fun, too. I, as you know, doing research is just a lot of fun because you, you find things you're looking for, and you, then you find things you're not looking for. Yes. And I, and I can give you a couple of interesting examples if you'd like to have them. Yes, please. Well, the uh, Carter family all had the same disease, uh, pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father died of it. The sisters died of it. Billy died of it. Uh, and Miss Lillian had it, but what with, you know, there were other things involved in her death as well. And so I found this file labeled uh, cancer. And I thought this would be really interesting because I'd get personal information about the family and their sufferings with the disease and all. So I called for the file. It had to do with smoking as the cause of cancer and how to win votes in North Carolina, a tobacco producing state. And the interesting thing to me about that is I learned all sorts of interesting stuff about how they politic how they maintain their ethics and standards and all of that and still politics to win votes. So I was looking for one thing and what I found was actually a lot more informative. Mm-hmm. And one, one other example, I, uh, you know, it was fascinating to read letters written by all these famous people. Yes. But I was reading one letter that was written in pencil on a lined tablet uh, the kind of uh, tablet that uh, children often use. Yes. And I thought, well, this is just another letter that a child wrote to the president. And I started reading it, and it was pretty sophisticated. And then pretty soon I realized what I was reading was this person who had written the letter was just giving Carter down the country for his stand on abortion. And then when I turned the page over, to see who uh, signed it, it was Mother Teresa. <laughs> this, you know, tells you, you know, how much fun it is to do historical research. And, you know, that kind of thing keeps you going. Yes. I love the Cardi Library. Pretty soon I, I was there so, so often. I got to know all the staff and they became like family. And when the first book came out, some uh, person here asked me what I liked best about researching in the Carter Library. And I said, lunch with the staff. So, okay, you're wading through millions of pages. And as you're doing that, that's how this story emerges, that you decide to home in on the couple, not just the man. Let's go back to how you scored with um, Oxford University Press in publishing the first volume, you knew then that you had to do a second volume or how did, let's talk about how that lays out because I think that's another thing that is very overwhelming for people is how to narrow into the story, but also how to know when to stop and say, this is another book entirely. Okay, that's a complicated question, but I can answer it for you. When I started research in August of 1990, and when I decided to do a uh, full-blown uh, biography of, of the couple, 
their public lives as well as their private lives, but emphasis on the public lives. Mm-hmm. The first book, I didn't just research it up to 19, whenever it was, 74 and quit. The, the research that I started on covered the whole time period. And when I published that book, that first book, what I did is I just took the research I had done and cut it off at that time period because I thought that would be a unit. But I had also done far more research at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still did a lot more research after that, especially on the post-presidency. My current book has about 10 chapters on the post-presidency. So that's the way I did it. I just cut the research off at that point and used that block of it for the first book. When I did that, I had every intention of continuing with it. As I had to figure out how to deal with this vast amount of material, so what I did on a scrap of paper, I listed uh, an eight-level approach to writing the book. Hmm. And I don't still have that scrap of paper, but I can tell you some of it. And the first one, of course, was a chronological approach because lives are lived chronologically. They're not lived according to neat little topics. And so I uh, started to develop a chronological file. And then other files I developed are topics and biographical files and all of that. And then the last two files, number seven and eight, uh, number seven is oral histories, and number eight is the writings of the Carters themselves. And so I went through collection after collection of the papers. And so I gradually built the chronological file by adding more and more to it as I went through more and more collections of papers. Yeah, so you had you developed a system that kept this mountain of papers from crushing you and instead gave it order. And from that is it's I always say that writing a biography is kind of like sculpting, right? Because you're you're sculpting material. I mean, it, I don't mean it just in a mechanical sense, but in the sense of how you embrace and dissect all of this information. So it sounds like that's you developed a system and that helped you find order. Yeah, I want in my book as much as possible to be based upon primary information, primary documents, and as close to the time period as it happened. And then I would use the secondary literature because, of course, by then there were lots of things that had been written uh, about Carter. Mm-hmm. And then I would use the newspapers and magazines and keep building the crime file from information I got from these sources. Mm-hmm. And then I developed to a biographical file because there were so many people involved in the story and some of them were prominent people and some weren't and some were heads of state with unpronounceable names that mm-hmm. we were harder to spell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I wrote the book, I wrote it from the chronological file. But say, if I'm in the chronological file writing the book and I get to the story of Vance's the resignation as Secretary of State, uh, then I go to my biographical file and see what else I have about Vance in there. And then I can put that back in my manuscript as well. You see why it took me 32 years. But I did other things as well, too. 
Yes. <laughs> you were living life and, and teaching full-time as well, right? You're right. Yes. <laughs> right. One question I know that people are, are always interested to know is when did you know, how did you know you were done? I mean, you were very methodical, or it seems that you were, but how, how did you know this is it? That's a good question, too. And I figured that out actually 20 years into the research and 10 years before I finished it. And uh, because I was floundering around looking for a theme in Carter's life, because, you know, his life is so complicated because he did so much. Both of them did so much. And I was looking for a theme. And I think this is one of the most important things about this book. And as a result of a relationship with my own son, who is now a professor himself somewhere, it finally dawned on me that what I was looking at with Carter that was there just big time all over the place that people weren't noticing much was his relationship with his father. And in both of these volumes, this maybe the second one more so, you know, I think what drove Carter more than anything was his relationship with his father. His father died in 1953 and Carter came back from the Navy to take over the business. And his father became a model and an ideal that Carter tried to live up to. And uh, the father had nicknamed him Hotshot when he was a kid. Hmm. Uh, and uh, Carter had gotten away from home and was having this nice career in the Navy, which Rosalind loved. But I think the, the image of the father and the example of the father was what drove him. But also Carter's personality became just like his father's personality. Uh, and to sum it up in one word, it's tough. The father was very demanding. He was demanding of perfection uh, as Carter was. And he didn't uh, give much reward if the person delivered the perfection. But if the person did not, then there would, there would be uh, punishment involved. And I've, this is, um, you know, I think this is in the book and, uh, you know, big time. And Carter's religion, I think this is very important. It's very important in my philosophy about history, how history should be researched and written. Number seven out of eight was oral history. And now oral history is just a mixed bag because people don't always tell the truth. Right. They tell you what they want you to know and not everything that you'd like to learn. And so the reason I say that next to last is I wanted to have a lot of information to compare the oral history with. You know, for example, if Rosalind Carter gave an interview to a magazine or newspaper in 1978, and 20 years later in an oral history, somebody says something about her at that time period, I want to compare it with the interview of 1978. And, of course, there are a lot of oral histories uh, uh, that I studied. I collected some done by the National Archives, some done by the Miller Center, University of Virginia, various others. So I, I collected all the ones that had been done, and then I did a number of them on my own. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I saved the, this is very different from the way journalists operate. I saved the oral history to near the last because I wanted to have something to test them against. Mm -hmm. And using Cyrus Vance again, 
Uh, he gave very few interviews, contemporary or after the fact. And I was lucky enough where I had two interviews with Cyrus Vance uh, at his office in New York City. The first one went fairly well. They both went real well. And I wasn't going to ask him about his resignation as Secretary of State because I thought I already knew so much about it. And I was going to ask him other things that I did not know about. And not very long into that interview, he brought it up himself because he wanted to make sure I had his side of the story of his resignation as Secretary of State. And of course, when I'm writing the book about his resignation as Secretary of State, his story is not exactly the same as Carter's story. And the task of the historian, you know, is how you're going to deal with this. Yes. You know, one's correct, which one is, is not. And of course, in this particular case, you tell both of their stories as best you can without passing too much judgment on it. Uh, but the oral history is oral history is very important, but uh, it's not always trustworthy. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, as I'm sure you understand quite well, there are some things you can only learn through oral history. Right. But that's where I, that's why I did it that way. And the last one, number eight, was the writings of the Carters themselves, mm-hmm. because the Carters have written tons and tons of stuff, autobiographical stuff. And of course, when I did that, I also I wanted to have a mass of information to compare what they said with what I'd learned from primary sources. And once again, there are things you're going to learn in their writings you're not going to learn anyplace else. But it's also interesting to see what they chose to write about, you know, and and things they did not not choose to write about. Uh, And so that was my eight-step approach to dealing with this mass amount of material and hoping to keep it detached history Uh, and of course i grew to like the carters more and more because i respect them tremendously but you know i wanted to keep my personal feelings out of it i'm Mm -hmm. sure you understand what i mean i wanted it to be a historical biography you know detached history yes and yet at the same time if you absolutely despised them it might be really difficult to spend so much time you're right yeah right so it's a fine it's a very fine line Um, but you know people love and dislike the carters and and one other thing i did i made a point of reading and sometimes interviewing people that i knew did not like the carters Mm -hmm. because I, i felt like i would learn from that too oh yeah absolutely when you finally did talk with the carters what was it like to finally sit down with them after you, you knew them better than practically anyone after all the time you'd spent reading their well, materials? Yeah, I was about five years into the research when I first talked to them and I asked for an interview with them and I wanted to interview both of them together because I was writing a dual biography. So I wanted to interview them together in their home in Plains because I thought I would learn more that way. And so through the, my contacts at the Carter Library and the Carter Center and Carter's personal assistant, I finally got the interview set up. Uh, and of course, I had to have the security clearance and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I went for the interview. I had a code to use that would cause the secure gates to open so I could go up to the front door. 
Uh, and so I went in and Mary Fitzpatrick actually greeted me. She was, she had been Amy's nurse at the White House. And eventually Carter came in, he sat down. He's very informal, very friendly. I was two minutes early and he's a stickler for being on time. And he commented that I was two minutes early. <laughs> Because that scared me to death because I thought he was going to throw me out. But then he just laughed. You know, he was teasing me, really. He has a great sense of humor. I think a lot of people don't understand his sense of humor. But anyway, I'd worked out all my questions. And eventually, uh, eventually, Rosalind showed up. And it was very relaxed. I mean, pretty soon, you know, I was calling him Jimmy and Rosalind. I was just sitting there very relaxed, answering the questions. And uh, kind of having a good time. And then the, their telephone rang, and he got up and went to the telephone a time or two and came back. He was red-faced and coughing, and then he would resume the uh, conversation with me. And I learned later what he was doing is he was talking to somebody in the White House because that's when they were moving Cedrus, what I believe his name was, from Haiti to Panama, and Carter was assisting in all of that. The White House wasn't doing, you know, what they were supposed to be doing. And he was getting a little bit angry about it. Hmm. And then I realized I was probably the only person who was hearing this conversation. So I took notes on Carter's end of the telephone conversation. Uh, and some of that's in the book. And we get to the end of the hour when I was supposed to leave. And Carter said, well, I was on the phone. You can just stay longer which shocked me, and he let me stay another whole hour, mm. and I was running out of questions. And so when I was leaving my office to, uh, to go down to Plains to interview him, I asked the graduate student, you know, in my office, who happened to be Ken Vickers, if there was anything he wanted me to ask Jimmy. And he said, yeah, why don't you ask him if Willie Nelson actually smoked dope on the White House roof? <laughs> and since I had run out of questions, I asked him, did Willie Nelson smoke dope on the White House roof? <laughs> and Carter just laughed, and, and Rosalind tried to deny it. And Carter didn't really deny it. But the irony of all of this, of course, Willie Nelson and Carter and various others have confirmed that story since then. <laughs> so it turned out to be a great interview. And then I have seen, he, answered, he has answered some questions in the mail for me since then. And on various occasions, I've, I've seen him. It must have been surreal to sit with them after all the immersive research you'd been doing, even though that wasn't, you know, it was early on in the process. Well, it was. And I tell you, finishing the book was surreal, too. I look at that book and I see my name on it and I thought, who is that? I mean, did I really write that book? So uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled with the quality of of publication and editing and and production of it that they did. And I am relieved that I finally finished it. And of course, since, as my mother would say, I'm not young uh, anymore. <laughs> uh, so, but I'm not ready to quit either. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying not to write another book, but I'm very likely to start working on one. But it it's, it's a strange feeling because it's a good feeling at one level, a very good feeling. Uh, but also, you know, there's a big chunk of your life that's now changed. 
That's Professor Stanley Godbold speaking about the second volume of his biography of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. I spoke with him via Zoom on September 19th, 2022. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles, California. Alani Hodge created our theme music. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>